A few years ago, I had the opportunity to visit the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte, North Carolina, where the life of the world-renowned evangelist is memorialized and where Billy and his wife Ruth are buried. It was a wonderful experience. I hope you get to go there sometime. Apparently, Ruth once saw a construction road sign, the words of which she requested to have on her gravestone. And in fact, it actually reads, End of construction. Thank you for your patience. What a woman Ruth Graham was. The Apostle Paul determined to finish his life well. In 2 Timothy, his last epistle, he wrote, For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my uh, has come for my departure. I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who've longed for his appearing. Not all of the characters in the Bible finish the course of their lives well. But Jacob and Joseph are two who certainly did. They modeled mature faith and a strong finish. Finishing the course of our lives well isn't easy or even natural. As we experience more and more of life's difficulties, it's easy to long for a more comfortable life. We may feel we've already made enough sacrifices. We've suffered enough for Christ's sake. We've had our season of serving. Near the end of Peter's life, he encouraged us to keep making every effort. If we do, Peter said, we won't stumble. Now, nor as we grow older. And in Peter's words, we'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Surely, if anyone could have claimed they'd endured enough, Peter, Paul, Jacob, and Joseph could have. But they continued making every effort and modeling mature faith. How can we be sure to finish well? I want to finish well. Don't you want to finish well? God's sanctifying work in us is mysterious in that he begins and he finishes it. And yet at the same time, we also have a part. One of the things God will most certainly work to correct is our habits. Habits of thinking and behavior. Our habits largely determine what we will become and whether or not we will finish our lives well. It's been wisely said that our direction, not our intentions, determines our destination. It's never too late to establish habits that will enable us to remain on course right to the end of our lives.
Well, you probably remember that our last lesson ended in Genesis 45 with Joseph revealing himself to his brothers and sending word to his father through them to come to Egypt with his entire household. So chapter 46 tells us that Jacob and his family set out. However eager Jacob was to see his son, and surely he was eager to see Joseph after all those years, he apparently had some hesitations about going. Verse 1 tells us, Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, that's before getting to Egypt, when he's still in Canaan, when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. You see, as Isaac's son, Jacob was cognizant that he was linked to the patriarchal promises. As we've learned, the patriarchs understood God had promised the land of Canaan to them. Jacob must have taken the idea of leaving Canaan pretty seriously. When he'd fled Canaan in his younger years for Padan Aram in search of a wife, he almost was prevented from returning by Laban. Additionally, in another season of famine, his father Isaac had received a very specific instruction from the Lord not to leave Canaan for Egypt. But there was yet another reason Jacob may have been concerned about leaving Canaan. Jacob surely was not only aware of all God's promises to his father and grandfather, but also of the prophecies they'd received. And you probably remember the Lord told Abraham that his descendants would live for 400 years as strangers in a foreign country where they'd be enslaved and mistreated. The idea of leaving his leading his family into enslavement probably seemed unlikely at the time because of Joseph's position in Egypt. But even so, Jacob wouldn't have forgotten about the prophecy. So Jacob offered sacrifices in Beersheba, a, a means of worshiping. Jacob had heard from God before, and it seems he was hoping to hear from God once again before leaving Canaan. And the Lord indeed appeared and specifically addressed Jacob's concern, telling him, don't be afraid to go to Egypt. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. Now Jacob knew he was not only going to Egypt because Joseph was calling him, he was going at God's leading. Well, Jacob's family had grown, and the members are named for us, totaling 70. Some of those listed probably hadn't been born at the time Jacob entered Egypt, but Moses, the author, who lived many years later, would have known their names and considered that they went to Egypt in their father's loins, so to speak. There's no explanation about how Moses arrived at a total number of 66 in verse 27, and a lot of suggestions have been made about this. Most consider Joseph and his two sons to be among the four that are excluded, but suggestions about the fourth person include Jacob, maybe it was Dinah, or maybe the daughter of Asher listed in verse 17. Another possibility is to exclude Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born in Egypt, and also Ur and Onan, who died in Canaan.
Now, the large size of Jacob's family hints at the tremendous growth that would occur in Egypt. They went into Egypt as a large family. They'd come out many years later as an emerging nation. Each of Jacob's 12 sons would become a tribe of Israel. The size of Jacob's family is also another reminder that God's promise to give Abraham many descendants was beginning to be fulfilled. Jacob now recognized Judah as the leader he'd proven himself to be. And Jacob sent Judah ahead to get directions to Goshen, the place Joseph had indicated he planned to settle his family. As soon as Joseph learned of their arrival, he went out to meet the party. Oh, not surprisingly, tears and embraces marked his union with his father. It had been 22 years since they'd laid eyes on one another. Joseph intended to introduce his brothers to Pharaoh. So he coached his brothers to tell Pharaoh they were shepherds or raisers of livestock in order that they'd be permitted to remain in Goshen, which was a very rich land. And in this way, they'd be allowed to be separate also from the Egyptians, since Egyptians detested shepherds. This was surely God's plan as well as Joseph's. For Israel was to remain a distinct people group and not to intermarry with pagans. So it was under God's direction and with his promises that Israel went to Egypt. Israel, that is Jacob, was nearing the end of his life and wanted to finish well in obedience to his God. You see, mature believers follow the Lord wherever he leads them. Mature believers follow the Lord wherever he leads them. Is following the Lord and his leading your habit? How do you respond when the Lord asks something difficult of you? For some, that difficult thing may be a geographical relocation. It may be a job change or the release or renewal of a relationship. However, sometimes it can be the very smallest acts of obedience that we find the most difficult. Is the Lord telling you that it's time to change your eating habits, the entertainment you seek, or the manner in which you communicate with a family member? The habits we establish now determine what we will do and be in the future. You may intend to follow the Lord, but are you currently in the habit of listening and following? Well, after seeking the Lord, Jacob moved to Egypt, and there his family prospered. In chapter 47, verses 11 and 12, we see that Joseph provided for his family, and they settled in the district of Ramses in Egypt. Beginning in verse 13, the story shifts from Joseph's family to the famine and its impact. We're told it was so severe that Egypt and Canaan were wasting away. So Pharaoh sent the people to Joseph for assistance. 
First, Joseph gave grain in exchange for money. And then once the people ran out of money, he sold them grain in exchange for livestock. And finally, once their money and their livestock were both gone, Joseph reduced them to servitude. Some have accused Joseph of being too severe in his treatment of the Egyptians. However, a careful reading of the text shows the Egyptians didn't see Joseph that way. They were exceedingly grateful to him. Joseph's blessing to Egypt and all the nations around it was a partial fulfillment of God's patriarchal promise through Abraham to bless the entire world. Well, beginning in verse 27 of chapter 47, the fruitfulness of Jacob's household is described in sharp juxtaposition to the situation of the Egyptians. While Egypt struggled, the Israelites increased greatly in number. While the Egyptians were taxed, the Israelites received open-handed provisions from Joseph. And Jacob enjoyed a longer life than expected, another 17 years. This, too, is a symbol of Israel's fruitfulness. When Jacob finally believed he was about to die, he called Joseph and asked him to vow he would not bury him in Egypt. Jacob wanted to be buried in Canaan with his fathers, an indication of his, his confidence in the fulfillment of God's promise to give the land to his descendants. Joseph agreed to do this. Verse 31 says, After Joseph made the promise, Israel bowed himself. Now some interpret this to mean that Jacob bowed before Joseph in gratitude for his vow. But it seems more likely that Jacob bowed in worship to the Lord. Hebrews 11.31 says that Jacob worshipped. Oh, he had so much to be thankful for. His own transformed character, the reuniting of his family with Joseph, and his prosperity in a foreign land, just to name a few. While Egypt suffered, Israel flourished, giving Jacob many reasons to worship. Mature believers, you see, are constantly worshiping. They're in awe of God. That's our second principle. Mature believers are constantly in awe of God. Do you find yourself in awe of God daily? The Bible tells us again and again to thank and praise him. Spontaneous worship occurs most often in people who've developed the habit of responding to life circumstances, good and bad circumstances, with praise and thanksgiving. If you're a person who's more likely to see the difficulties than the benefits in each circumstance, you may have to work harder at this. If we don't learn to respond to life's difficulties with praise and thanksgiving, we'll inevitably be embittered over time because life is so full of trouble. On the other hand, just think, do you know a joyful Christian who just seems to exude thanksgiving and praise regularly? Well, then let me ask you, 
which kind of a person do you want to become? You might benefit in this from keeping a daily list of the ways God's been good to you. I've been working on that for a number of years now, and it helps me to be thankful, to be aware of all the things I'm thankful for, and to praise the Lord more regularly. You might think on that list each night as you're falling asleep. The psalmist wrote, on my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. And we can be in awe of him. Maybe you need to use your mealtime to praise and thank the Lord for as many things as you can. How will you go about developing a habit of praise and thanksgiving? Chapter 48, verse 1 says, Some time later, Joseph was told his father was ill. Joseph returned to his bedside with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And verse 2 tells us that Israel rallied his strength to give his final blessings. First, it seems, he met with Joseph and Joseph's two sons. And then later, his other sons also gathered to be blessed by him. Joseph, Jacob began by reviewing the promises God made when he appeared to him at Bethel, also known as Luz, emphasizing blessing, many descendants, and land. He referred to the Lord here as God Almighty, a term used throughout Genesis in connection with God's covenant promises to the patriarchs. You see what God promises to do? He, the Almighty, is powerful enough to accomplish. Jacob gave Joseph the double portion of inheritance that normally belonged to the firstborn son by, in essence, adopting Manasseh and Ephraim as his own sons. They'd each inherit a portion of Jacob's possessions and a portion of the land in Canaan along with their uncles. This explains why Ephraim and Manasseh are named in the Bible among the tribes of Israel, again, along with their uncles. Joseph's sons apparently knelt between Jacob's knees, their grandfather's knees, so that he could kiss and embrace them. Jacob called upon the God of his fathers, the God who'd become his own shepherd to bless the two boys. What do you think might have been in Jacob's mind when he referred to the Lord as his shepherd? Don't you think he recalled God meeting him at Bethel so many years ago when he, the homebody, left alone for Padan Aram in search of a wife? Don't you think he recalled how God had caused him to prosper when Laban was trying to cheat him? Don't you think he remembered that God had told him when it was time to go back to Canaan with his wives and children? Don't you think he realized God had sustained him in his confusion and grief over what he thought was Joseph's de death during those 22 years of mourning? Wouldn't he have remembered that God appeared to him 17 years earlier in Beersheba and assured him he was in line with his will by taking his family into Egypt. Oh, truly, God had been his shepherd. Then 
Jacob surprised Joseph by insisting on granting the younger of his two sons, Ephraim, the greater blessing. Now, this was in line with Jacob's own experience. He had been blessed over his older twin brother, Esau. His father, Isaac, had been blessed over Isaac's elder brother, Ishmael. The reversal was countercultural, but God isn't bound by human convention. He often chooses people whom we might least likely expect him to use. Jacob gave Joseph a specific piece of land. Now, the Hebrew for the words translated a portion, this portion or ridge of land are actually identical to the place name Shechem. Jacob seems to have used a wordplay to indicate the specific location. According to the book of Joshua, Joseph's descendants later buried him in Shechem. Jacob then called all of his sons to him in order to give his deathbed blessing to each one. The blessing was understood by all to be prophetic. The first three sons' blessing actually was a condemnation of their behavior, which would, according to the prophecy, have an impact on their descendants. Now, in Moses' day, the Levites actually helped overturn their curse by showing zeal for the Lord. You can read about that in Exodus 32. In response, the Lord honored them with the privilege of becoming the tribe through which Israel's priests would descend. However, they were scattered nonetheless. The Levites did not receive a parcel of land in Canaan, but were given cities spread throughout the land belonging to the other tribes. This scattering, however, served to bless the other tribes. Judah's blessing recalls the meaning of his name, praise. Jacob spoke of Judah as the leader among his brothers and the victor over his enemies. The meaning of that phrase, until tribute comes to him, or your Bible may say, until it comes to the one to whom it belongs, has been traditionally interpreted by Christian and Jewish scholars alike as a reference to the Messiah. In other words, the scepter will not depart from Judah until he to whom it belongs comes. Most certainly, the obedience of the nations can only be described as belonging to Messiah. Wine and milk were valuable commodities, and the tribe of Judah inherited land that was rich with these. However, some see in this a reference to the future opulence in the millennial reign of Christ. Many Christian interpreters have seen specific references to the person and work of Christ, even here in the vine, the donkey, the wine, and the blood. The blessing to Judah, therefore, seems to extend beyond his own time, beyond the time of the kingdom of Israel, and even possibly beyond the first advent of Christ to the time of his second coming. The prophecies about Zebulun, Issachar, and Dan are quite obscure. And then Jacob interrupted his blessing without any explanation by interjecting a cry for the Lord's deliverance. The hope of the ancients was in the delivered deliverance promised to Eve in Genesis 3.15, a deliverance obtained by Messiah. Perhaps Jacob's statement resulted from his vision of the dangers that would come upon Israel 
alluded to in the to in the prophecy he'd just given about Dan. Perhaps as the Lord inspired his prophetic blessings, his thinking was just increasingly directed toward the deliverance that Messiah would bring. The prophecies concerning Gad, Asher, Naphtali, and Benjamin were also quite obscure. Jacob's blessing to Joseph is the longest of the two. Joseph and Judah are highlighted in the blessings. In time, the southern kingdom of Israel became known as Judah because that tribe so dominated the territory. The tribe of Ephraim, one of Joseph's sons, dominated the northern kingdom called Israel. Jacob said that Joseph is a fruitful vine, implying prosperity, which was especially true of Ephraim. The prophecy moves immediately to describe the danger of being attacked by hostile, bitter archers. Now, this can only be a reference to Joseph's mistreatment by his own brothers. Nevertheless, as the prophecy indicates, the Lord sustained him. Jacob called Joseph the prince among his brothers, which, of course, was literally the case because of Joseph's role in Egypt. It seems that Jacob sought to impact the lives of his sons as long as he had the breath of life within him. Because mature believers are focused on blessing others. That's our third principle. Mature believers bless others. None of us knows what our health will be like as we age. Some of us will have more physical strength with which to be of service than others. But you know, there's no biblical model for retirement from Christian service. The Christian with a vibrant walk with Christ will always seek to minister to others in one way or another. On one particular occasion, the Apostle Paul and his co-worker Silas were beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. Yet they had a powerful impact on other prisoners by singing and praising God throughout the night of their imprisonment. When God is actively working in us, his work naturally flows through us to impact others. If we no longer have any interest in impacting others, very well may be an indication that our own spiritual lives are stale and even that we've stopped growing. Whatever our limitations, there's almost always some way in which we can be a blessing. Have you developed the mindset, the habit of service? Blessing others is most basic to the Christian life. In verse 29 of chapter 49, we see that after Jacob blessed his sons, he told them to bury him in Canaan with Abraham and Isaac. And with this final word of instruction, Jacob breathed his last and was gathered to his people. For the first time in 39 years, as part of his father's extraordinary funeral procession, Joseph went back to Canaan. All the dignitaries of Egypt and chariots and horsemen accompanied Joseph and his brothers. 
But following Jacob's burial and their return to Egypt, Joseph's brother's fears awakened. Apparently, they never believed Joseph had truly forgiven them and thought with their father gone, he might seek revenge. Joseph was grieved to think his brothers had never understood the totality of his forgiveness and his complete trust in God. He responded by telling them not to be afraid and reminded them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. Verse 20. Joseph anticipated the fulfillment of all God's promises, and he also died in hope. At the end of chapter 50, we read that Joseph, like Jacob, wanted to be buried in Canaan, and at the end of his days, he asked his family to carry his bones out of Egypt one day. He assured his family that although he wouldn't be there to provide for them any longer, or to participate in their return to Canaan, God would surely come to their aid. Verse 25. These powerful words at the end of Genesis close the book with the same theme which its first three chapters introduced, God's promise of deliverance. Jacob and Joseph died exhibiting faith in God's promises. Mature believers are full of faith. Mature believers are full of faith. The patriarchs believe God would keep his promises and give Canaan to their descendants, even though they never saw that promise fulfilled in their lifetimes. God would come to their aid that was their confidence. Is your habit one of immediately filtering life circumstances through faith in God and his promises? Or are you more likely to worry first and consider God's promises later? You know, if Jacob and Joseph had had their eyes on their circumstances at the time of their deaths, I imagine they could have easily allowed fear to grow. Fear that they and their descendants would never leave Egypt and would never inherit God's Canaan as God promised. They could have decided their lives had been lived in vain hope. They could have withdrawn into depression and died defeated. You see, if we don't habitually exercise faith, we're likely to end our lives in fear. Instead, the patriarchs died triumphantly. They were men of faith. So what kind of a person will you become as you grow older? A man or woman of fear or a man or woman of faith? Do you merely intend to be a faith-filled person? Or are you currently walking that path 
exercising faith in your present circumstances. The patriarchs modeled mature faith and a strong finish for us. Wouldn't you like to have that as your legacy as well? I surely would. Whether you're 20 years old or 90 years old, it's never too late to begin establishing habits that will enable you to remain on course right to the end of your life. Thank you.